visit the Downtown Den, join us through our website, all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Stay in, stay safe, visit the Downtown Den. The latest visitor to the Downtown Den was Ilford North MP, labourising star Wes Streeting. Wes has penned a pamphlet talking about how the party can re-engage with the electorate and try and become a credible political force once again and an effective opposition and potential government. He talked to us about that, but first he gave his reaction to Keir Starmer's election over the weekend as Labour Party leader. Good afternoon to everyone who's joined us. I can see there are 19 participants. We're expecting a few more to join, but um, we're going to make a start because we did have this down to kick off at 1.30. And I'm delighted to be joined uh, today in the downtown den by Wes Streeting, uh, Labour Member of Parliament for Ilford North. Um, uh, that's right, isn't it, Wes? That's Ilford right, that's North. all right. I've got yeah. the mixed up, thank goodness for that. Um, a member of the Fabian Society Executive Committee as well, I understand and the author of a very interesting uh, new pump just wiping some toothpaste off my lip there um uh, the author of a very interesting um new pamphlet about how the labor party can potentially re-engage with the electorate and come back from what was um whatever your politics a disastrous defeat uh, back in december uh, but we before we talk about the pamphlet wes um, first of all, I'd like to get your reaction to the leadership election at the weekend. And uh, was the result of, of Keir Starmer's victory uh, music to your ears? It's something you welcome? Yeah, it was actually. Um, I mean, I think just in the last couple of days, we've already seen a, a sea change in, in people, uh, in tone, in approach from the uh, new Labour leader. And I, mean, I think one of the things that was most remarkable about that result was that not only was this not, uh, you know, the most likely or predictable outcome, I mean, at the beginning of this contest, uh, Keir was not the front runner and wasn't seen to be the front runner, uh, but he not only won, he won with an, with an absolutely phenomenal mandate. I think he got more votes than even Jeremy Corbyn did in the first leadership uh, election. He's got uh, a thumping uh, mandate now to um, lead the degree of change that the Labour Party needs. And I think with the appointments he's made to the shadow cabinet, he's signalling that change in approach. So, um, I mean, look, there are lots of reasons to feel quite um, sort of down about things at the moment. This is a really worrying time for the country. The news about the prime minister, I think, is really unsettling for all of us, wherever we sit on the political spectrum. Um, you know, and they, as we we'll talk about in terms of the context of the pamphlet, I think the long tail of this coronavirus pandemic will be felt for some time. But for our sort of parochial issues in the Labour Party and, and thinking about how we respond to the worst defeat since 1935, that is one piece of good news that we're holding on to. And as you say, he's already started to make changes to his top team, his shadow cabinet. Um, are you pleased with the appointments he's made so far? Yeah, I think he's done exactly as he said he would, actually. He's, he's promoted talented people from right across the diversity of the Labour Party in every respect. You've got people who span the spectrum of the of the Labour Party politically. You've got people from across, right across the country. Uh, you've got good gender diversity. Um, you've got a diversity that looks like the country that we seek to represent. So all of that is very good. I know there will be some appointments where people have kind of gone, 
um, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this bluntly, um, who, who's that? Um, so to take someone like Nick Thomas Simmons, who's the new Shadow Home Secretary, he will not be a household name. But um, for those of us who know Nick, um, he is ferociously bright. He's a really good performer at the dispatch box and someone who I think will be a big figure for Labour politics for many years to come. So I think um, there's a good mixture in there of, of some really experienced hands, um, like Rachel Reeves, who's just joined the Shadow Cabinet from the Business Select Committee, where she did a really great job, um, but also some fresh faces that I think will inject um, some fresh blood into the top of the Labour Party. And as people do start to give the Labour Party another look under new leadership, they will see um, a change in personnel that I think will, will help us as we try and rebuild our credibility and support in the country. Mm. Uh, and difficult for any opposition party during the sort of crisis that we're experiencing at the moment to get uh, time and bandwidth. But nonetheless, you know, at some stage we will resume to normal life and normal politics. And the one thing I can say, Wes, is, you know, I, I really got frustrated, if not angry, uh, in the last couple of years leading up to the last general election, watching the television every time a Labour front bench spokesperson came on through the fingers of my hand, because it, it was at times, I have to say bluntly, embarrassing. You know, they didn't seem to have uh, a handle on their brief. They weren't particularly media savvy. And it didn't seem to me that they were speaking to uh, what I would describe as traditional Labour Party voters, never mind winning over and converting others. Um, I think when you look across that front bench team, and, and as you, um, I, I know some of the names that perhaps aren't as familiar to those who are with us today, I'm fairly confident that that at least will give the opposition a more credible voice in terms of the media. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, I think none of us really want to dwell on the past anymore. We'd rather put it behind us. Yeah. The pamphlet's called Let Us Face the Future Again. But in there i mean I, I don't pull my punches when it comes to my analysis of what went very badly wrong and you know i don't think you can just you know blame, put all the blame onto jeremy corbyn and also i think as kira's rightly said we've got to acknowledge that we've lost four general elections in a row now um so the, the problems for the labor party are quite deep but ultimately i think the big lessons we've got to learn is we went into a general election at a time of Boris Johnson's choosing, I think it was a catastrophic error of judgment to go into an election on those terms. We went in with the most unpopular leader of the opposition um, since records began. And I think in the end, although um, there are actually lots of policies that I would have been proud to vote for in the manifesto, and some of those are reflected in the pamphlet in terms of the ideas we should take forward. Ultimately, um, there were others that frankly were um, incredible and and unbelievable including to people who um, the policies were aimed at so I think we went into a manifesto that people didn't believe um, a worldview that people reviled and I, I think there were real questions amongst the voters about whether Labour could be trusted with national security um, the response to the poisoning of the Screep House loomed um, large in voters memories but there were other things that made them uneasy about that and the political culture of our party people feared. I mean, I, I represent a constituency with a significant Jewish community um, who felt really quite hurt. I mean, I had people literally crying on the doorsteps um, about the, the state the Labour Party had gotten into, lifelong Labour voters who felt they couldn't vote Labour. 
So, you know, the, the, the change we've already seen, frankly, in four days from Keir is very welcome. And just this morning, he had um, a meeting like this one with senior Jewish community leaders. Um, he's got a very good op-ed in the Evening Standard and the Jewish Chronicle today. So I think we can start turning the page on some of those issues quite quickly. But none of us are under any illusions that um, we've got a big mountain to climb to win the next general election. But I do actually, for the first time in a long time, feel there's a leader that can actually bring together the breadth of the Labour Party, and I think he's showing how he can do that, and can command the confidence of voters. I mean, I, I, the last election, I had a number of people on the doorstep literally say, if you had a leader like Keir Starmer, I'd consider voting for you. So I think Keir is a, a known quantity to lots of the voters. Um, they know he's been part of Jeremy Corbyn's top team, but they know he's not been entirely on the same page politically. So I, I hope that um, you know people will start listening again to what we've got to say, and hopefully by the time we get to the next election, there will be a leader and a programme that people feel they can believe in. A, a, an excellent analysis, I have to say, Wes, and, and one I would totally concur with. Just before we turn to the pamphlet now, final point really on where we are at this moment. You've mentioned the pandemic and clearly as a, an MP, you are on a daily basis having to deal with some of the challenges from right across uh, the community. Um, what are you feeling and sensing is the mood out there now? Clearly London was hit hardest um, by the coronavirus and there's been lots of um, fatalities sadly and as you mentioned the Prime Minister is now in intensive care. Um, do you sense that people are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel or are we still a fair way off from that? I think, I mean, it's interesting you say, you know, what's the feeling out there? I mean, I, I, this is a weird feeling for me because I, I, especially having won a marginal seat in 2015, I'm normally out knocking on doors every week. I live slap bang in the middle of my constituency. I get the tube to work with people. I see people in the supermarkets. I have never felt so disconnected from my own community as I do right now because you know, aside from a conversation with someone on the checkout the other night, no one wants to talk to anyone. Everyone wants to avoid each other quite rightly. That's just London, um, yes. But, you know, I, I do think, and, you know, Boris Johnson's situation, I think, really underlines this. This, this virus doesn't discriminate. Um, and we are all living through um, the same sorts of worries, fears and anxieties. So I think some things are getting um, demonstrably better in terms of things like the availability of food at the supermarket and things like that. Um, but uh, I, I don't yet see real light at the end of the tunnel. I think we've still got some way to go. And um, I, I guess one of the things I have been encouraged by is the extent to which the government recognised that this was an economic crisis as well as a public health crisis. So the support that Rishi Sunak announced for um, businesses um, and workers was very welcome. I think the things that are worrying me at the moment, frankly, are the people and the businesses that are falling through the gaps yeah. and aren't eligible one way or another for some of those schemes. That does worry me. Um, on the health side of things, um, while we all understand that this is a, an unprecedented situation, it's the lack of PPE equipment that's kind of really giving me anxiety, the impact that's having particularly on care homes as well. Yes. Um, and some of the, I've got a care home at the moment that's got a real big issue with coronavirus. Um, so I'm worried about that, that angle of things as well. Um, and the testing still. I mean, the World Health Organization was really clear, test, test, test. 
And although the government is moving in the right direction, I welcome the commitments they made. Um, I think it's just been a real challenge for them to scale up quickly enough. Now, some of this is going to have to be a lessons learned exercise, and I don't really feel um, the time is right or, or well used to sort of start dwelling now on what we could have done better and what we should have been planning for early on. The important thing now is that we pull behind the government's efforts, that we reinforce the public health messages, that we all take our own individual responsibility in this crisis to avoid spreading the, the virus any further and just try and help our, ourselves through this and to remain as connected as we can with friends and family, helping people out. And I have to say, I mean, as I said, although the virus doesn't discriminate, um, when I feel particularly miserable about being at home all day, I, I do remind myself that I am lucky that I live in a house with a back garden. Yeah. I have got space to move around my house. I've got families living in temporary bed and breakfast accommodation, um, hotels, B&Bs, overcrowded. It's really unpleasant. And it's one of the reasons why when the closure of parks has been floated to, to yeah. prevent people um, interacting in the way that they shouldn't be, I keep on resisting that because I think for lots of people just getting out for that one bit of exercise a day is really important for their mental health and their well-being so I think we've just got to be mindful of that as well the virus will take down anyone frankly but there are some people who are facing real hardship at the moment and, and that's on my mind as a constituency MP too. Yeah some great points to us. Um, let's turn to the pamphlet then and, and clearly you've been thinking very hard about the future of the party and you're in a marginal seat. Um, I always find that Labour MPs or indeed Conservative MPs who are in marginal seats think a little bit more carefully about the promises that are being made and the policies that are being created. And I want to focus, because largely we've got a business audience with us today, on the economy and equality, which is something that you um, open the pamphlet up with. It's something that you've taken really seriously. And I think what you would like to see um, is a new relationship developed between the Labour Party and business? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the context for the pamphlet was um, exactly that. I, I was fed up with whinging about what had gone wrong with the Labour Party and thought, well, you know, the one criticism I've had from the left of the Labour Party, actually, is all very well you attacking Jeremy Corbyn and complaining about the leadership. Well, what do you stand for? And I think that's a fair challenge. So I tried to sort of set out not just an analysis of what had gone wrong, but to look at some ideas to face the future and to look at that through the prism of five big challenges that I think are going to shape our country over the coming decades. Um, economic inequality and whether that reduces or, um, or worsens as a result of our political choices. Our ageing society, which I think has been thrown particularly into sharp relief by the coronavirus pandemic. The technological revolution, which um, can't come soon enough in some ways given our isolation at the moment. Um, the climate emergency, which continues to be one of the biggest challenges facing humanity and is completely wiped off the agenda at the moment as we deal with, with the virus. And shifting global power as well, um, and the way in which um, the old alliances, the old institutions are breaking down, um, again, which I think is really showing itself up in terms of the global response to a global pandemic. Um, economic inequality is something I'm very passionate about. Um, I come from a working class family myself, uh, education, state education changed my life and has given me the opportunities that have led me to being able to talk to you today with the position that I hold. Um, but the, you know, as much as children born in Britain today are among the luckiest in the world and have a world of opportunity on their doorstep in a way that so many children around the world don't, 
This is also a country that is riven with inequalities between the rich and the poor, the regional imbalances, which I think have had a really sharp impact on our politics, um, for better or worse, depending on your political persuasion. Um, and I think we've got to do something about that. Um, I think the challenge for the Labour Party is, um, and this is, a, this is a long running problem for our party, um, when we talk about tackling injustice, like homelessness, um, the housing crisis, poverty, food banks, um, I think lots of people agree with us. Most people would agree with us, actually. No one wants to see people going to food banks. Um, the challenge for the Labour Party is that people know that our heart's in our right place. They just want to know that our head's in the right place, too. And although we've got a vision for helping the poorest in our society, and that runs as a kind of continual thread throughout my pamphlet, we've got to have an agenda that speaks to everyone. And I think sometimes our narrative around business in particular um, has... I think done a real disservice to lots of British business actually. Um, in so many respects, business in Britain is a success story. We're a global centre for all sorts of industries. We punch above our weight given the size of our population, um, uh, but we've made the most of the advantages that we, that we have as a country and we should celebrate that more. And thinking about some of the jobs that I've done in the past, um, working for charities focused on tackling inequality, whether um, educational inequality, um, working for some education charities or LGBT equality working for Stonewall. I actually saw lots of businesses really committed to improving the diversity of their workforce, their, their, their wider social responsibility. And I think that ought to be recommended and celebrated a lot more. And the way I put it in my pamphlet is we've, we should be working with the best of British business to reform the worst of British capitalism. One of the arguments that I... Um, and one of the examples in terms of policy recommendations was the introduction of the national minimum wage. Now that was resisted for decades, um, best part of a century. It took a Labour government to deliver it. There was a huge clamour of opposition from the Tories and quite a lot of business. Um, and, and what the Labour government did in introducing the minimum wage wasn't just lift lots of people out of poverty by paying them more. Um, we also got business around the table to help shape the national minimum wage with trade unions, with government, with academics. And one of the things I do is, is link economic inequality with the technological revolution and the impact that might have on the labour market in years to come, the sorts of disruption, the dislocation, the fact that in the gig economy, although it's brought lots of benefits, arguably the gig economy is one of the worst offenders at the moment for actually eroding some of the basic rights and conditions that we've established in our country over a century. And one of the things I argue for is a good work commission modelled on the low pay commission so that we get businesses, trade unions, academics, government around the table again to look at what does the future of good work look like? How do we ensure that we build on the social rights and protections that we have? And how do we make business part of the answer and part of the conversation? Um, I also celebrate other aspects of, 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 of business, particularly, um, you know, from a Labour point of view, I think the kind of the, sometimes the best you get out of Labour politicians, it, it, aside from a kind of a glib line and op-ed saying, no, we're really going to be pro-business and this time we really mean it. You occasionally get some arguments to say, well, business is really important because it gives people jobs and we're the Labour Party, so we want Labour and we want jobs. And of course, that's right. But let's also remember that business creates, um, it innovates, it services, it enhances our quality of life in all sorts of ways. In fact, at the moment, we're probably feeling that quite acutely with some of the, um, as, you know, some of the businesses we can't currently access. I mean, it's not going to be too long before this turns into an afro um, and my hair's <laughs> going to get very long and I'm just missing my local hairdresser or I'm missing my local calf. But 
um, British business is so much bigger than that. It's so much broader. It's really diverse. Um, and it is a success story. And so um, when, when Labour leaders say that um, they're pro-business, this time I really want us to mean it and um, to make business part of the solution in tackling the big problems that I talk about in the pamphlet. I think uh, lots of things that you've touched upon there, Wes. Um, but this idea that Labour isn't seen as business friendly, I think that's clearly the case uh, under the previous leadership. It's not always been the case, of course, but I do think there's been an erosion of engagement between business and labour for some time now. Um, however, I would say to you, I don't think there'd be many people, um, certainly within the downtown membership, who would suggest that the Conservative Party have been particularly yeah. business friendly. And, you know, famously, our Prime Minister said during the Brexit debate, well, well, F business. Yeah. And I do think that there is a sense um, in business that, you know, for many years now, um, putting it very starkly, well, Tories are for business, Labour, not, not as much, if you like. Um, whereas I think over the last five or six years, business have felt as though they've been battered from all corners. And if I can just turn to one of the specific challenges, and again, I know this is something that you're keen to uh, have a debate and a discussion on, it's that area of skills and training. So, you know, big business particularly, um, and some medium enterprises have been hit with this apprenticeship levy, and lo and behold, an awful lot of that money has ended up in the treasury coffers because there's not been any emphasis or conversation about how better training, better education is delivered. That's something as we go through this technological revolution and evolution, we really do need to get right, isn't it? Yeah, and um, I mean, you're right, but I was going to do a bit of Tory bashing, but I know people don't always want <laughs> partisanship, so I'm glad, I'm glad you got that in. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I thought the apprenticeship levy was a really bold policy from a Tory government, and I was quite uh, you know, cautiously excited by it, but I've been disappointed by the implementation. I mean, lifelong learning is one of the big themes of the pamphlet. And actually, to be fair to um, the work that Angela Rayner did um, as its Shadow Education Secretary under Jeremy's leadership, I do think um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn got instinctively the importance of lifelong learning. Mm. Um, so I think we've got to really build on that um, uh, and think about how we tackle. I mean, when you look at the rates of adult illiteracy and innumeracy in our country today, it's really shocking. But what I found even more shocking and highlight in the pamphlet is that when you look at um, the levels of illiteracy and, and, and numeracy and the skills base of um, younger people in their 20s, we're actually going backwards as a country when you look at people in their 30s and 40s and where, where they are and where they were. So um, I think we've got to really rethink this whole issue of lifelong learning because clearly... Um, over the course of our lifetimes, we are going to be living longer. At the moment, we're still expected to be working longer, although I've never really think the public policy side of that has been thought through properly. And um, we are going to need to reskill, retrain to learn. Um, and that's really important for work. But as I also argue, it's also important for life as well in the context of the ageing society. You know, I, I kind of want people in their 70s and 80s, not just to look back on a life well lived but to live life to the full until the very end and if that means being able to access you know um, a new language or um, doing some you know English literature classes or, or art classes whatever it might be I think we've got to create a sort of lifelong learning society really so I hope 
we can put some meat on the bones of some of those ideas as we uh, as we sort of develop some of those policies under a new leadership but I think you're absolutely right we've got to work with business to do this and recognize actually the diversity of, 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 of British business and industry as well because um, the sorts of challenges in terms of reskilling and retraining your workforce will look very different um, to some SMEs than it will do if I walked into Google campus and talked to them about their learning and development and the way that it works um, and so I think you know apprenticeship levy nice idea in principle in practice I think you're right to question where the money's gone and what impact it's really had and I think that the other point I'd make Wes is that although national politicians from all parties I'd have to say do appear to be somewhat disengaged from business now um, you mentioned regional disparities and of course one of the solutions that have been offered to that is devolved government and certainly in the the north of England with Steve Rotherham, Andy Burner, I think in particular, uh, Dan Jarvis and then if you go to the Midlands uh, Conservative Mayor but Andy Street who's a former business leader himself, I think what business are saying to me is that they feel that those guys on the ground are getting it far more so than the national politicians and that's probably been the case for 12 or 18 months now. Yeah, I, I think it's, as I argue in the pamphlet, it's no coincidence that um, as well as one of the most unequal societies, we've got one of the most centralised states. Um, and I do think, although they don't have, in my view, um, enough power um, or resources, um, when you look at what um, people like Andy and Steve have been doing, um, both using their formal powers, but interestingly, using their convening power quite a lot as well. I think they've actually managed to um, go a lot further than the sort of the narrow scope of their formal role defines. I mean, I was looking at some of the stuff that, um, uh, you know, Andy's been doing on homelessness, for example, which, you know, does fall within his remit. But that's been very good. Steve Rotherham's stuff on um, apprenticeships and having a sort of UCAS style portal for people looking for um, opportunities other than going to university. I mean, th th there's a model there that we should be just taking and rolling out elsewhere. But, you know, I was, I was, in the argue, in the pamphlet, I argue that we need the biggest um, devolution of power and resources in in our history, and I, I really strongly believe in that. I, I I just believe, especially having been a local councillor and a deputy leader of a London borough, I really think if you put the decision making uh, powers and the resources closer to communities, um, you get better quality decisions. Clearly, there are some things like national infrastructure that need to be done at scale and where economies of scale. Um, the resources of the, of the, na the nation state are uh, second to none, uh, even second, you know, even big businesses, you know, look at this pandemic, nation states have had to deal with this. Um, there is a limit to the power of the private sector. So, um, you know, there is a role for that. But I think we've got to devolve more power, devolve more resources and get better quality decision making as a result. And I think um, by virtue of where they sit, they are much closer to businesses much closer to their regional economies and I, I think it's no coincidence actually that they're you know the conservative government is responding in the way that it is um, and actually I think political competition um, although you know I would much rather have Labour representatives everywhere um, there is no doubt at the moment that um, you know having conservative representation in, in non-traditional areas is affecting our politics and, and I and I the challenge for us as the Labour Party is for us to raise our game and to be better than the other side, to not assume that any votes belong to us. 
and that competition between the parties and to make different parts of the country contested territory for both of our parties can only be a good thing for the country. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. I don't think anybody, even the staunchest of Conservatives, can believe that uh, no opposition is a good thing for any government. So hopefully we'll see a return to effective opposition under Keir's leadership. Final point for me, and then I'm going to bring some of the audience in. I know Jim Hancock, for one, is itching to ask you a question. Um, you wrote the pamphlets, obviously, pre-pandemic. Nobody could have foreseen the scale of the impact that this has had. It is going to change attitudes. It's going to change the culture within our society. It probably certainly should change people's opinions towards those who have been described in the past as unskilled and therefore have been low paid. There's a greater value now, I guess, um, to those people. Um, and then again, you, you briefly mentioned, I know a subject you're passionate about and speak about in the pamphlets, climate change. There are things that are happening through this pandemic, lots of negatives, of course, but some positives as well, including what we're doing now. You know, homeworking has just become something that we have to do. Um, if you look at the satellite pictures that are coming from across the world and the, uh, the cleaner air that we're now experiencing because of the shutdowns, are the things that we can learn and that you will be looking to, to take forward and progress on the back of the pandemic and the new experiences that we're currently going through. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're right about the timing. I mean, this pamphlet was literally about to go to press and then the scale of this became clear. And I just thought, I really, really hope this, you know, these five, five chapters about the future actually last the next couple of weeks, let alone the next couple of decades. Um, but actually, I do think that a lot of the themes in here, um, you know, really have been thrown into sharp relief by the pandemic. I'm glad Jim's coming in with a question because he was supposed to host the Manchester launch of this pamphlet. Um, but um, yeah, I think um, I think we've definitely seen. Um, I think the exposure of the social insecurity of our society in a really big way. For years and years, political parties have had to try to, to earn um, support amongst the public by talking tough on welfare. And, you know, I grew up um, on benefits and um, I, you know, saw as a councillor and, an, and as an MP the impact of welfare cuts. And I think it was only when so many families looked for the first time at what life on universal credit or statutory sick pay would mean, I think the harsh reality of our social insecurity became clear. So I hope that we can now have a new conversation as a country about how it is that countries like Sweden offer forms of income protection, which have a universal component available to everyone who falls on hard times, but also um, an insurance-based component so that if people do need to pay in because they want to do things like be able to protect their mortgage payments and things if they, if they hit hard times, well, let's look at that and let's come out of this society in a more just way. You're absolutely right about um, some of the workforce issues in social care. I mean, I, I think it is almost criminal really that we haven't done anything about social care. I was looking back in terms of writing my pamphlet, you know, um, Andy Burnham and Gordon Brown were savaged for proposing to introduce a so-called death tax to fund the social care system. David Cameron, after, his, after he left office, said he really regretted the fact he didn't do anything about social care. We then got our revenge on poor old Theresa May in the 2017 election campaign by basically accusing her of introducing a dementia tax. Um, and, you know, it goes on and on. I mean, 
So we've got to do something about um, social care. I argue that we should care more about how we fund the living than how we tax the dead and make some bold political choices around areas like inheritance tax, but also value our social care workforce. Um, we've got some really great people working in social care, but they're all, almost all working in poverty paying conditions. And when you think about the sorts of jobs that they would be doing for either ourselves or people we care most about in our lives, why would we want to put the people we love in the care of people who aren't paid very much? We'd surely want the best people caring for them in, you know, some really quite delicate situations. So I hope that the, you know, good answer on social care comes out. And I've tried to point in that direction, the pamphlet on technology, um, you know, it is going to have a big disruptive impact on the labour market. And we've already seen the impact of this pandemic on the labour market. And that's where ideas like the Good Work Commission came in. Um, on climate change, you're right about the, um, the, the, the sort of byproduct of this pandemic being a reduction in admissions. Um, how do we, over time, um, meet our carbon reduction crisis uh, targets to make this crisis and um, recovery from this crisis a a green recovery and how do we get the um, balance right of a you know partnership between governments business civil society working together to try and reduce those targets and i do think this is going to be a real tension in the coming years about the um, speed at which we need to go to take effective action to avert climate catastrophe without trashing the economy or wrecking people's livelihoods and there, we've got to be honest about the fact that there are tensions and choices and trade-offs so let's try and work through that together and finally, on, on shifting global power, I mean, I think um, what I argue in the, in the chapter has been epitomised by the work and the, and the, and the um, articles that Gordon Brown has um, been putting forward around the lack of global leadership. I mean, I, I can't think of a single global leader that's really stepped forward and said, right, let's, let's pull together. How, where, where's, the, where's the G7 response? Where's the G20 response? As, as I see it, there have been a couple of phone calls and not yeah. much else. And yeah, I've got one constituent I'm, and I'm trying to get his family back from Bangladesh at the moment where he's stranded I mean the the impact of this pandemic on um, countries like Bangladesh um, other um, countries um, in the global south is, is really severe if we think it's challenging for the NHS imagine what what it's like in those countries which don't have developed healthcare systems and what this will reach so um, some really big questions there. Um, not all, you know, not all directly linked to the coronavirus. Some broader questions. There are big, there are big issues in all of those themes that we should have been worried about anyway. But I hope more than anything else that as we emerge from this crisis, there is a desire at a national level, but also at global level, to create a better kind of world than the one we currently live in. Where's well, that uh, questions from me up this moment in time? I've got, uh, as I say number of people uh, wanting to, to come in and just put some questions to you. So, uh, Jim Hancock, can you uh, kick us off, please? Now, can you hear me? Yes, we can, James. Um, Wes, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, it seems to me that there is a place in British politics for a political party, and I'm not sure that one exists. One that is economically radical, I mean, absolutely take your point that there is widespread support and probably even more so in the light of the events we're going through now for Labour's, if I can describe it, sort of fairness agenda. But there are people who are very patriotic, they want a strong defence policy, and they want a credible immigration policy. Now for a party, not you, but a party that seemed under the patriotic label to often embrace Hamas and the IRA, on, in terms of defence was uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament and on immigration 
um, many of the members of the Labour Party wanted free movement. It's quite a stretch for you to be that party, isn't it? Well, um, the alternative has been tried and failed miserably. You know, some of my colleagues did decide to um, leave the Labour Party and to try and set up something else. Um, I understood why they did that, but I, I didn't think it would succeed. And I think in a two party system, which our country, you know, we're bound together by the first past the post system. Um, I thought it was our responsibility to try and make the Labour Party a, a better alternative to the governing party. Um, because as I argue, when you believe as passionately as I do that conservative governments are bad for the country, it follows that when Labour loses, the country loses. So we've got to sort that out. I mean, um, some of these issues around patriotism I deal with very strongly in that final chapter about shifting global power. Because if you want to think about how your country um, succeeds in a changing world, you've got to have a confident sense of your own self and your own nation. And um, I'm very clear about um, where I stand on that and I think where actually a lot, most Labour people would stand. Um, first of all, we believe in a United Kingdom. Um, that is going to become an existential question for our country, I think, because of Brexit um, and the, um, the dominance of the SNP in Scottish politics. And um, I know that there is a lively argument taking place amongst some, some of my friends in the Scottish Labour Party about whether we're right to be so firmly unionist. Um, but I, I don't think you can de debate the existence of your own country um, through the prism of votes at the ballot box. I think that is a fundamental question of identity and conviction. And I believe in the United Kingdom. And I think English people are just as entitled to a strong view about that as, as our friends in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, because this affects all of us. And I'm strongly of the view that if you know as someone who believed that leaving the European Union was a historic mistake the idea we break up our country um, I think would be would be disastrous actually so I'm strongly pro pro union I also argue on on defense and security that Labour needs to discover its own traditions I, I, I think as I said in an interview with Parliament's House magazine the other week Attlee would be spinning in his grave at some of the um, positions of the Labour Party in the recent years. Um, you know, the left of the Labour Party rightly celebrates the role of the 45 government in establishing the welfare state, and I'm very proud of that too. But Attlee also, and his government, people like Ernest Bevin, built the international institutions which built a rules-based international system from which we've all benefited, which has safeguarded our defence and security for, um, you know, the, the decades that followed. And so I think we should be unequivocal um, in, in support of NATO and think about how we um, reinvent international institutions to meet the challenges of the modern world and play a strong role in that. I think Britain's got a strong voice to play on things like financial regulation, climate change, defence and security. Um, and I think we've also got to, um, you know, in terms of thinking about uh, the, the future, be clear about where we stand on defence and security. This is a dangerous world. Um, we should stand firmly and unequivocally in favour of the um, nuclear deterrent. Um, but we should also be thinking about the um, relationships and the alliances um, that we will need to strengthen. Um, there's a big debate about China raging at the moment um, within the political parties as well as between political parties in the UK. And in particular, this question of um, the US-China relationship and where we position ourselves is going to be a really big one for our country. Um, I, I think that China is going to be a very dominant power in this century, and I think it would be foolish for us to um, damage the strong diplomatic ties we've managed to build with China in, in recent years. Um, 
but we should also be in no doubt that when it comes to a choice between we have forced to pick a side between america and china we will always choose the united states we have far more in common in terms of our values um our outlook um and although the current uh, occupant of the oval office um makes being a strong pro-atlanticist quite difficult right now um our relationship with the united states and the special relationship is deeper than the personalities of the, of the president and our prime minister um there's a multi-tiered relationship um every level um, between our country and the US and we think we've got to think about how we hold on to those ties that bind beyond the lifespan of this presidency um, and fundamentally for democracies like the UK and the US we've got to think about how it is in this turbulent world that democracy rather than tyranny defines the 21st century and how is it that we reassert a rules-based international system based on democracy freedom and human rights um, rather than the kind of go it alone mentality the protectionist approach which I think not only risks um, diminishing our security and our position in the world, it also risks um, abandoning lots of people who currently grow up um, living in conditions that none of us would wish for ourselves or our children. Thanks, Wes. Thanks for the question, Jim. I know Michael Taylor has uh, made a comment in, uh, in the chat room. Michael, uh, currently at uh, MMU, so I'm sure interested to hear what you had to say about education. Um, also a former parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party, but no longer a member, Wes, so you may be able well, to do come a back. In come Michael, good afternoon to you. Hiya, Frank. Hiya, Wes. Yeah, uh, my question is actually um, about um, the Good Work Commission. I thought it's a great idea in your pamphlet. I liked it when uh, the pamphlet came out last week, and I liked it more that I've heard about it today. I also think it's an excellent idea because we know it works, and it's been done here in Greater Manchester. Um, okay. with, the, with the outcome being a good employment charter that was launched and, and I'm working very hard for our institution not only to be a signatory to it but to also evaluate that policy as being something that's effective. But like many things including the employment charter but also tackling rough sleeping which you alluded to um, that's been done with the coalition of really really good groups of stakeholders that the mayor has convened through his use of soft power through his role and, and you alluded to other mayors doing the same in their cities as well and yet i asked this question before how many times did did jeremy corbyn call andy burnham and say we've got a general election coming up andy we want to eradicate rough sleeping how have you done it in greater manchester we all know the answer to that it was never so what's going to change about about this under under keir's leadership yeah, it's a great question and a great point. Um, I mean, this morning, the first shadow cabinet meeting was held and Nick Forbes, who's our leader in local government, was invited to take part in that shadow cabinet meeting to brief the shadow cabinet on the, co the COVID-19 response and, and the role that councils are playing. Um, on Saturday, when Keir was elected, one of his first calls was to Nick um, to reassure him that he wants to work closely, more closely with Labour in local government, where you know we're in power up and down the country and um that you know as a former councillor myself i always get frustrated when people measure local elections as, as if they're just milestones on the way to the next general election and the only thing that matters is what it tells us about the standing of the national leader rather than what it says about what's going on in local government where we're making a real difference um i really hope that people like andy like steve like dan um marvin down in bristol are playing a bigger role 
in shaping the policies of the party, but also are deployed um, as spokespeople for the party. Um, I mean, I've seen Andy on the telly quite a bit um, recently, and whenever he comes on, it's just a reminder of the star quality that we've got out there in in local government. Um, and, you know, I think it'd be very interesting. I, I think for me, one of the measures of success is, is if we get this right, and if we're serious about giving power away and making sure that people have control and agency over their own lives, it'll be very interesting to see whether there is a wider trend of more people doing what Andy and Steve have done of leaving Westminster to go back to local government rather than people doing what I did, which is coming from local government into Westminster, thinking that that would be the right place to be able to make more of a difference. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I hope that already we're seeing from Keir that kind of sea change um, in approach, because um, clearly there is a lot to shout about in terms of success of Labour in local government. And I think that's part of addressing the quite a credibility challenge of can Labour be trusted to govern? Um, we should be saying to people, well, yeah, look at what mayors like Andy Burnham are doing. Um, that is what Labour government looks like. Thanks, Michael. Um, Thanks, next question up, uh, I've got Frank Rogers from Law Firm Kerwins. Frank, do you want to come in and put your question to Wes? afternoon. Um, fascinated to see the shadow cabinet, Wes, and trying to make sense of the direction the party may go in. I don't think it helps me. We've got Rebecca Long-Bailey in, I hope not, just as a sop to the Corbyn wing, but a lot of new blood. Surprised not to see Hilary Benn in, who I'm a big fan of, but my question is, is this, if the party is going to shift from what Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald stood for, how easy is it going to be outside of Westminster to wrest back the conscience and mindset of the party from the bottom up? Because what I thought Jeremy Corbyn did, which is, which is typical of somebody with his mindset, is he got control of the party from the constituency committees, from the membership, from the unions up. And that dictated to a large extent what the Westminster bubble did. So the Labour Party's changed the Westminster bubble, but may, may well now be out of sync with the party at large. Is that a, an accident waiting to happen? Or is there a way of balancing it from the top down? Um, I think this is definitely a, um, a big cultural challenge for the Labour Party. Um, and I think we've all got a responsibility to, 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 to bear and a part to play in changing that culture. Um, if I'm honest, I think that there were lots of members who voted twice for Jeremy Corbyn who are decent, principled people who want to change our society for the better and who are passionate about tackling injustice and saw Jeremy Corbyn as the means to do that and felt that um, the rest, of, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me, one of the reasons I wrote the pamphlet is you would, you would think sometimes listening to what Labour Party members say about MPs like me, that I kind of sit at home, you know, plotting public service cuts, looking at maps of the world, thinking which Middle Eastern country can I bomb next? <laughs> and I just don't think that's an accurate reflection of where Labour MPs stand or what we, what we stand for. Um, but I think we've got to accept a bit of, um, you know, responsibility and self-criticism here because 
um, if that's the perception of us, we've got to own that, you know, own our own reputations and try and change perceptions and reassure people that's not what we're about. I mean, actually, um, going back to something you said earlier, Frank, about being a marginal MP, you know, I'm rooted in conversations all the time with people who desperately want to see a Labour government, people who think the Labour government is always the worst thing that can happen to the country, and crucially, a whole bunch of people in the middle who are open-minded but need to be persuaded. Um, and that really does root your politics um, because, you know, it really does frustrate me when people talk about the achievements of the last five years and say, but we had this, you know, we had policies that would change this country. Well, evidently we didn't because they're not changing anything. They've just, they're, what they have changed is the size of the conservative majority. Um, so that is going to be a big sea change. One of the things that I always say to my members locally is, you know, I'm, I'm all up for party democracy. Um, I'm happy to debate ideas and I'm happy for members to have more say in our policies. But with that, with that power comes a responsibility to knock on doors, listen to voters and to think about whether the policies you're arguing for, A, will genuinely make a difference because I think there are questions about the real impact of some of those policies and whether they were ideological totems rather than plans to change Britain. But secondly, are they persuasive? Are the arguments persuasive? Is it really what people want? And I think sometimes there are people who believe that ideological purity and feeling good about ourselves and how virtuous and righteous we are is, is better than being in power and having to make difficult choices and compromises. And I think we've got to start learning, as I argue in the pamphlet, start learning the language of priorities. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't pull my punches about the last couple of manifestos. Some of them have not been as bold as they could have been, even on tackling the worst poverty and injustices. You know, the 2019 manifesto was less generous to people um, in poverty in terms of the benefit system than the Liberal Democrat manifesto was. Um, if you ran a distributional analysis alongside our manifestos um, in the way that um, myself and Rachel um, campaign, Rachel Reeves' campaign for the government to do alongside their, their fiscal statements, and you look at which, which households according to different level of income would benefit from your tax or spending decisions, um, I do think our last two manifestos gave away a lot more money to middle and upper class people than a lot of people would imagine given the rhetoric that comes from Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so I think those are some of the things that we've got to learn. But this is going to be a process. Um, the culture has got to change. We've got to kick quite, you know, a lot of racists out of the Labour Party, frankly, when it comes to tackling anti-Semitism. Um, and we've got to create a culture in which people are listened to, where we're a pluralistic party, where we can have a respectful debate, robust debate, but respectful debate. Um, and, and where we can do that in a way that speaks well to the culture of the Labour Party and makes people want to vote for us. Because if we keep, keep on having, you know, these sort of bloodletting kind of rows, it doesn't do good for any of us. And, you know, I, I will certainly accept my fair share of responsibility for that too, as a Labour MP who's been very critical for the last five years. Thank you. Thanks for your question, Frank. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Simon Danchuk, who is our chair in London. Good afternoon, Simon. Are you all right? Yeah, can you hear me good. okay? Yes, we can. Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. It's good to see you, Wes. Congratulations on the pamphlets. Uh, I wanted to return to the issue of the Shadow Cabinet. Uh, some really, really strong appointments there, some really impressive politicians. Uh, and there was an opportunity for a narrative around uh, a new broom sweeps clean. But appointing Ed Miliband has resulted in some headlines around Millibandism is back. Uh, 
that, so two questions. Is that a, a judgment of error on Kia's part? And secondly, you talked about being pro-business. Uh, appointing Ed Miliband to be Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, is he the best person to front up that pro-business agenda for Labour, do you think? <laughs> oh, you really want to get me into trouble very early on with anything. <laughs> um, I think I think I'm I'm trying to sort of learn a new art of um, of message discipline now. Um, but I think um, I think it, you know bringing Ed back has kind of created lots of um, you know headlines about sort of going back to something rather than going forward to something. Yeah. But I, I think when it comes to the climate change side of the brief. Um, Ed has a huge amount of expertise there from his time in government and the work that he's been doing since in opposition. Um, I think one of the big challenges that the Labour Party is going to have in the next five years is the battle for relevance and getting any kind of cut through um, in the media. It's going to be really hard because we don't have, you know, an, an, a knife-edged majority where votes can go either way and the Labour Party is hugely relevant because we can win votes. That's not going to happen, you know. Um, as you'll know from your um, time in Parliament, you know, you can turn up for an opposition day debate on Wednesday afternoon and you know what the outcome is straight away. You can put amendments to government bills and you're just literally going through the motions. Um, and I think Ed does have a media profile and a cut through. Um, but this, this tension between um, the climate change agenda and the business agenda um, and how you take business with you if you're aren't, aren't making big arguments about how you change the structure of the economy is one of the issues that Ed is going to have to um, wrestle with as, as, as the shadow business secretary. Um, and I'm confident that he can get that right. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to him about it. Well swerved, Wes. Um, I, <laughs> I've been reading quite a bit of the reaction to Ed Miliband's uh, appointment to the shadow cabinet. Uh, the one thing I would say without offering an opinion about uh, the personality in a sense is that I think um, we all remember William Hague as not being a particularly effective leader of the Conservative Party, but nonetheless he did go on to become a very talented and able minister. So perhaps, um, as we've seen with many people through the years, um, even Gordon Brown, some would suggest, was a great chancellor, not so much prime minister, um, you don't necessarily have to be a great leader to, to be able to undertake uh, a, a good brief uh, within a cabinet or shadow cabinet. So, so I, for one, wish, wish Ed all the very best with, with his new challenge. Um, I, I think that we've exhausted questions. I apologise, Wes, for not being able to tempt any of our female participants to ask a question this afternoon. Um, and I'm just going to put a quick shout out two people who are still with us if you do want to ask a quick question particularly if uh, it's nicola or julie or any of the females that are with us please quickly put your hand up chris will see you and we'll bring you in if not then i am going to close the session down i'm going to say wes thank you very much for a very open and informative conversation oh here we go we've got nicola gleave <laughs> nicola wouldn't let me down nicola great to hear from you Hello, thank you. I've really enjoyed the session today. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to um, to ask a question question um, regarding something you mentioned earlier, was around um, the current um, the impacts of COVID nineteen on the economy and society, which is something that's quite close to my heart. And 
core part of, of, of my work in terms of um, those communities who actually where we see um, the majority of, of, of health impacts come from some of those social determinants. And it's really just, um, just to raise what your thoughts may be um, around how do we, how do we balance um, managing the, the effects of COVID-19 social distancing, but also actually recognizing and seeing already quite, quite early on into that lockdown, um, the impacts that it is having on families and livelihoods and mental health. Um, and actually recognizing that a lot of the um, a lot of the communities and areas in which we I work in particular, so social isolation is 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 a creates a huge impact on people's health, and um, it's just really you know what are your thoughts on how do we manage that going forward? What 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 might be thoughts around that? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And um, I think, as I said earlier, I'm really worried that in tackling one public health crisis, we're in the process of creating another. Um, issues like loneliness have been going up the political agenda, as I think people have recognised the impacts of loneliness and so social isolation on people's broader health and well-being. Um, one of the things I talk about um, in, in the first and second chapters of the pamphlet is about the way in which we change public services to put um, people, you know, not just in terms of devolving power from national governments to local government, but actually giving people more agency and control over their own lives and in designing and delivering services, drawing on lots of work done by Hilary Cotton, who um, is an academic who's done a huge amount of applied work um, internationally through international development, but also domestically here in the UK and has set up new types of models of um, organisations and frameworks that, that create a more relational state where um people who are at risk of loneliness and isolation are better able to connect with one another to sort of build better build communities that they can feel part of um and i, I think you know in the immediate term there's lots that councils are doing my, my council set up a well-being service for example um where people who need help can ring up but at the moment my sense is that people are using those sorts of services in in a more transactional way um you know i need a i need food you know, can someone help me out with some shopping or can someone deliver some food? Um, I think some of the work the NHS volunteers is trying to set up is around people ringing people, not to say, do you need a service? Do you need something picking up or dropping off? But to actually just say, are you okay? Do you fancy a chat? Um, and thinking about things like um, digital skills, um, quite a few of my friends have actually got, got their grandparents kind of, you know, on Zoom, able to talk to people. Um, so in some cases, some families are seeing more of each other, you know, and have done in the last few weeks than they would do normally. And that's great. So but how can we kind of build build on that and make sure that, um, you know, people who are on their own and are, are feeling, you know, isolated are able to um, get access, not just to services, but to relationships, to people, to friendships, you know, the sort of the ties that bind. Um, that's not always a, a, an easy thing to do in public policy terms. We're, we're, we're good at rules, we're good at regulations, we're good at services, we, you know, we, we can do transactions, but historically the state hasn't been quite so good um, at building relationships or, or at least fostering, you know, maybe this isn't something the state will be good at, but there are lots of organisations out there, um, voluntary organisations and others who are much better at this stuff. 
So we just need to empower them, give them the tools and the most important, the resources um, to go ahead and do that. Because I, I do think this is kind of teaching us all um, quite a lot about the things that we take for granted, actually. And for those of us who are naturally connected, who do go off to work every day and do see people, you know, this is this has been quite a testing time. I I've kind of been going almost uh, crazy not being able to go out and see people. It's I'm a naturally sociable person. This has been really hard, and yet, you know, as I as I said right at the outset, you know, my my life, you know, being a member of parliament at home is really not hard. Um, and I can get out and about, and I can do the shopping once a week when I need to, and I can go for a stroll. Um, respecting all the social distancing rules but there are lots of people not in that position and I do think longer term I am worried about the sort of surge and in, in demand we're going to see for certain services once this is over and mental health services were not well resourced and well equipped to deal with the existing mental health issues let alone the ones we're in the process of creating. Thanks Nicola thanks for the great question to, to end the session then I'm sure touching on the concerns many of us have uh, in terms of when we come out of this thing. Whereas, as I was saying, really appreciate the time that you spent That's with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Give, me, give me some people to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating open discussion. I know you've kindly said that you'll come and do some proper live events for us, if I can put it that way, once we get through this. And we really look forward to welcoming you to some downtown events across the north and also in Birmingham as well at some time in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. That's okay. Kia gets in touch soon with one of those middle ranking jobs, mate. You yeah, well, I, I know he's not going to be ringing at the moment because there's a PLP meeting, a parliamentary lay party meeting with Kia right now, which I'm now going to dial into and hope no one notices. <laughs> I'm like, but um, other than that, I will be glued to the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck and thanks again. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, Wes. Thank you.